Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah, his message to your people so long ago. And it is amazing how we see your word coming to life even in modern times. And so, Lord, tonight as we approach the scriptures, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us and help us to understand what you said to nations of old and what you want to say to us tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Bible, God judges individuals, families, churches, cities, even nations. I'm sure he also judges businesses and labor unions and civic groups and ball teams. That's why the Braves are heaven's team and the Phillies play for hell. But there's one certainty... All of life is God's domain. All of life is under God's jurisdiction. And starting in chapter 13, Isaiah launches a series of judgments against the Gentile nations of his day. Babylon, Moab, Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Tyre, and Syria. Last week we studied Babylon. Tonight we're going to tackle Moab. Chapter 15 begins, the burden against Moab. Now, three nations bordered Israel to the east, Moab, Edom, and Ammon. Today, this area makes up the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, a pro-Western democracy. I'm sorry, not a democracy, but a pro-Western monarchy with its capital city of Ammon, or Ammon. It's fashionable today to do research on your roots. Maybe some of you have done this. You've tried to track down your family tree. Websites like Ancestry.com utilize the power of the internet in order to uncover your genealogy. For some folks, this is a fun and meaningful pastime. For me, I've always been a little leery about this. I suspect that I'm from a long line of horse thieves and swindlers and really haven't wanted to know my ancestry. This is probably how the Moabites felt regarding their progenitors. You see, the Moabites were a people with some definite skeletons in their closet. This past week, I read about a Michigan woman who 16 years ago gave her baby up for adoption. Recently, she tracked him down on Facebook only to get romantically involved. The lady had sex with her own son. Obviously, this gal is a sick pup. She was sentenced to at least nine years in prison. But welcome to Moab's ancestry. Moab was the incestuous offspring of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Physically, Lot left Sodom, but spiritually, he took Sodom with him. One night, he got drunk, and he had sex with his two daughters, Both girls became pregnant. The eldest daughter named her little boy Moab, and the younger daughter named her son Ammon. Over the following centuries, Moab and Ammon lived in the shadow of their cousin next door, Israel. They were family. Nothing was stopping them from embracing Abraham's God and joining in the worship of Yahweh. In fact, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 23 had even laid out provisions for accepting and assimilating Moabites into the nation of Israel. 
In fact, this is how David's great-grandma, you remember her name? Ruth, who happened to be a Moabite, this is how she became part of the lineage of our Lord Jesus. Imagine this, a Moabite was a member of God's family tree. God loved Moab, and he gave Moab every opportunity to join Israel in true worship, but instead Moab chose to be Israel's enemy and to serve idols. You see, Moab typifies the person who knows the truth about God, has access to the truth, is surrounded by the truth, yet never believes in the truth. Sadly, in a spiritual sense, it seems today's churches are full of Moabites. Now, verse 1 begins, Because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night, Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Two cities of the Moabites. Ar was a city situated 20 miles east of the Dead Sea on the southern bank of the Arnon River. This river fed down into the Dead Sea. Ar, this is just my speculation, but it may have been home to some river pirates. Because if you ask them where they were from, they would say, Ar, matey. You get it? The word kir means wall. And we assume kir or kirak was a heavily fortified wall city about 10 miles southeast of the Dead Sea. Isaiah prophesies that both cities will be destroyed in a nighttime raid. He goes on, now he has gone up to the temple of Debon to the high places to weep. The Moabites served the idol Chemosh. It was a god associated with the stars and astrology. And its temple was located in the chief city, the capital city of the Moabites, Debon. It's interesting, ancient Debon was the site of a very famous archaeological discovery. In 1868, there near the Dead Sea, a German missionary found an ancient engraving or an ancient plaque. Prior to this stone being uncovered, the skeptics doubted the existence of King David. He was only mentioned in the Bible. There was no extra-biblical corroboration for David and his dynasty. That is, until the discovery of this stone. It's very famous now. It's called the Moabite Stone. And from that stone were found the names. On that stone were found the names Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Israel, and the house of David. Engraved by the Moabite king, the stone authenticated a big slice of biblical history. Today, the stone, by the way, is on exhibit in the Louvre in Paris, France. And so, ladies, you can tell your husband to take you to Paris so you can see the Moabite stone. And by the way, speaking of archaeology, single ladies, some single ladies in the crowd tonight, just just a word to you. You should know that archaeologists are really a great type of man to marry. It's great to marry an archaeologist. You know why? The older you get, the more interested he'll become in you. (laughs) Well, Isaiah continues to speak of this attack that's coming. He says, Moab will wail over Nebo and over Medabah. Mount Nebo, remember, was the place that God took Moses to show him the promised land. He saw it, But he never entered it. And this was the story of Moab in a sense. 
They were so close to God's promises and blessings, but they refused to cross the Jordan and join their cousins Israel. As a result, on all their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. Now in Bible times, shaving your head or beard was a sign of mourning and grief. Of course, today, there are other explanations for baldness. There's the theory that at a certain time in a man's life, his hair starts to grow inward. If it strikes gray matter, it turns silver. If it strikes nothing, it just disappears. I've also heard this explanation. Bald in the front, you're a thinker. Bald in the back, you're a lover. Bald front and back, you think you're a lover. Well, baldness among the Moabites meant that they weren't thinking and that they didn't love God. And thus they were judged by God and they grieved accordingly. Verse 3, in their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Heshbon and Eliali, northern Moabite cities, will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz maybe about 15 miles away. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out, his life will be burdensome to him. Judgment's going to come on Moab, and death would have been merciful. It would have been easier if the enemy had just put them out of their misery. Their life will become painful and burdensome. He says, my heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zor like a three-year-old heifer. Now, a three-year-old heifer was prime beef. And so the idea of Moab being cut off at three years old was, is, in essence, in the prime of his life. Or at the zenith of their national life, Moab will be cut off. He says, for by the ascent of Luhith, they will go up with weeping. For in the way of Horonaim, they will raise up a city of destruction. All these, of course, are Moabite cities. For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate, for the green grass has withered away. The grass fails, there is nothing green. Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Egliim and it's wailing to Bir Elim. For the waters of Demon will be full of blood, because I will bring more upon Demon. Lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. There'll be no survivors. Those who escape will be cut down. Now, aspects of God's judgment on Moab were fulfilled when Assyria invaded Moab and invaded the region around 700 B.C. You remember the Assyrians, they met their match outside Jerusalem. We've talked about this before. Emmanuel, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He appeared one night, and in a single night, he slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians. It's recorded in 1 Kings and in other places in the Scriptures. But apparently, while the Assyrian army was in the area, and before they were, they were uh, vanquished by Jesus, by Emmanuel, they wreaked havoc on Moab, and they fought against Moab and brought God's judgment upon these people. And yet there are other aspects of this prophecy that we believe are still future. In fact, when you drive today from the Sea of Galilee 
down the Jordan Valley to the Dead Sea, the contrast between the two banks is stark. On the west bank, looking at our picture on the right side, the Israeli side, you can see the land is lush and fertile. Crops and fruit are plentiful. But on the east bank, on Jordan's side of the river, most of the land is still barren and desert. You know, in 1948, the United Nations passed a resolution calling for two, the establishment of two independent states in the Middle East. The Jewish state of Israel and the Arab state of Jordan. And when that declaration went out, immediately the Jews went to work reclaiming the swamplands and replanting forests and developing extensive irrigation systems. The Arabs did nothing with their land. That's why they want Israel's land. Today the Arabs want a Palestinian state when they already have one. Jordan. But Jordan has done little to develop its potential. Jordan remains one of the poorest countries in the region. There's plenty of room for the Palestinians to settle in Jordanian territory, but they covet the rich land of the Jews. Once I saw a cartoon, the prime minister of Israel was sitting down with an American Indian chief, and the chief says to him, let me tell you about swapping land for peace. Let's hope Israel knows That it doesn't work. Well, chapter 16 continues God's prophecy to Moab. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, David attacks Moab, and he places them under Jewish control. And for the next few centuries, the Moabites had to pay tribute to Judah. But in Isaiah's day, they rebelled. And here the prophet rebukes them for it. He tells them to send the lamb from Selah or from Petra, their desert fortress, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, or in other words, to the temple mount. Pay your tribute. Don't be in rebellion. Verse 2, For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. The Moabites would be like wandering birds unless they realign themselves with Israel. He says, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts, do not betray him who escapes. Notice Moab is given a new job. They're told to hide the outcasts and the refugees. Verse 4, let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab, be a shelter to them, From the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at hand. Devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. Moab will give shelter and refuge to God's outcasts. Now here's a passage that many Bible scholars believe has end time implications. Moab is told to hide God's outcasts. To provide them shelter from the invader that he calls the extortioner. Now please know, I am against all forms of racial prejudice. All prejudice is evil. But history attests that there is a certain form of prejudice that is particularly hellish. 
Anti-Semiticism is a form of prejudice that, that has satanic qualities. It's particularly sinister and diabolical. It's amazing the extent to which Satan has gone to attack the Jews. I believe the persecution of the Jews it isn't just a result of fallen man and our sinfulness of discriminating, but I believe it is a direct assault by Satan himself. It's of supernatural satanic origin, anti-Semiticism. Revelation 12 focuses on the great tribulation, the seven years that lead up to Jesus' return to the earth. We're told a lot about what happens during those seven years, both on earth and in heaven, especially at the middle of those final seven years. On earth, the last megalomaniac with global domination in mind, the ruler the Bible calls the Antichrist, will march his coalition armies into the land of Judah, and he will surround the city of Jerusalem. You see, he hates the Jews. This madman will enter the temple in Jerusalem. He'll declare himself to be God. He will desecrate God's altar, and then he will blackmail the world into worshiping him. You remember how he does that. People are forced to accept a numerical code. 666 to exchange goods and services. Revelation talks about this. It's interesting here. Isaiah tags this ruler the extortioner. How appropriate. And yet while these events are occurring on earth, an even more profound development takes place in heaven. In heaven, Satan gets tossed out on his ear. You see, up until this point, Satan has carried credentials that has given him access to God's throne. But when God sees what happens when the Antichrist enters the temple and desecrates the altar, God says, enough is enough. After the extortioner blasphemes God and sets himself up as God, Satan gets the boot from heaven. And Satan comes to earth knowing now that his time is short. God is about to put him out of business. And so Satan uses his best shot to hurt God. And what might that be? He goes after his kids. If you want to hurt me, go after my kids. That's what Satan does. He goes after Israel. Revelation 12 tells us that he persecutes Israel. And the Jews escape. They run into the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus also sees this desecration occur in the temple, which he calls the abomination of desolation. Ever heard that term? Jesus says in response to that, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What mountains? Well, if you look at a map, the obvious answer for residents of Jerusalem are the mountains southeast on the other side of the Jordan River, the mountains of Moab. Apparently, halfway through the Great Tribulation, the Jews will flee to Moab, where they'll seek refuge and protection from the extortioner. Daniel chapter 11 tells us about the Antichrist's march toward Jerusalem. It's interesting. He shall enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand. Notice those who escape. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Who escapes? Moab escapes because Moab 
will provide refuge and sanctuary for the fleeing Jews. Now, earlier in verse 1, Isaiah mentioned the city of Selah. It goes by some other names, though. One of its names is Basra. Another name you might be more familiar with is Petra. Ever heard of Petra? It was a rock cliff city south of the Dead Sea. Petra sits in a basin about one mile square. Interestingly, the size of the old city of Jerusalem. But what made Petra so formidable, so unconquerable, was its entranceway. Petra's front door, in essence, was a mile long and only a few feet wide. This made Petra a great hideout. If you've ever watched the movie Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, Indy rides his horse up to the cave where he finds the Holy Grail. That's Petra. Now, Bible scholars see in Isaiah that when the Antichrist invades Israel, the Jews will then flee to the mountains. They'll they'll flee to Moab, to Petra. It's interesting, Isaiah 63 describes the second coming of the Messiah and the battle of Armageddon. But the Lord isn't seen coming from Megiddo, which is in the north, or even coming from Jerusalem. He comes from Basra, which was the the other name for Petra. And he see, Isaiah sees Messiah coming with his clothes, his robes, splattered with blood. You see, by this time, the Jews will have put their faith in Christ. The Savior will crush the Antichrist army in a bloody battle on his march to Basra. This whole end time scenario, the battle of Armageddon. It's really not the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon, or the hill of Megiddo, is the staging area. The fight is over Jerusalem. But the Antichrist meets his destruction when he flees to Basra to try to finish off the Jews. That's when Jesus will return, and he will slaughter the Antichrist and his armies, and he'll come from Basra up to Jerusalem with his clothes splattered in blood. It's interesting, in the early 1900s, William Blackstone and several other Christian Zionists, they stored tracks in Hebrew New Testaments in the caves there at, ba- at I'm sorry, at Petra or Basra. I've never been there, so I don't know if they're still there or not. But it's interesting, from their study of Scripture, they were convinced that the Jews will one day flee to Basra, and they wanted to make sure they had help that would point them to Jesus. Well, verse 5 tells us, In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Now, notice the Messiah will sit in the tabernacle of David. Interesting phrase. In Acts chapter 15, verse 14, James, the leader in the church in Jerusalem, He mentions two signs of the end times. He says, God will save the Gentiles. Then James says, after this, I will return. Speaking of the Lord. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. A phrase lifted right out of Isaiah 16. Which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. After the church age. 
after the rapture has taken the church, Jesus will return and he will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And from that throne, he will host the world. Now, the temple was toppled by the Romans in 70 AD. It no longer exists today. And yet, from this verse and others, scholars believe that the temple will be rebuilt in the last days. In fact, one of the signs of the end times is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Today, there is a movement in Israel to rebuild the temple. In Israel, we visit the Temple Institute there in Jerusalem, where the sacred tools and the furniture for the future temple are actually being fabricated today. The laver and the menorah, among other articles, have already been completed. In fact, priests are now in training in schools and yeshivas there in Jerusalem to minister in the future temple. And yet here is a detail that often gets overlooked. Isaiah and James refer to God's throne as the tabernacle or the tent of David. Rather than a permanent structure, could it be that Messiah will reign from a tent? The tabernacle or tent of David? People think the temple is a building that will take years to construct. But after the rapture, the Antichrist could negotiate a peace between Israel and the Muslims that would allow the Jews to erect a temporary tent on the temple mount. This tent could be erected not in years, but in days. It all could happen very quickly. Verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lie shall not be so. Therefore Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail. For the foundations of Kirharasheth, who shall mourn, surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish in the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazir and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Therefore I will bewail the vine of Sibma. With the weeping of Jazir, I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliah. I don't know how to say that. For battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Because of her pride, Moab had been judged at the hands of Assyria. He says, gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting, nor treaders will will tread out wine in the presses. I've made their shouting cease. Therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir Haris. You know, one of the most revealing indicators of a man's heart is his response to the suffering of his enemies. And here, rather than taking some smug satisfaction that Moab has fallen, that Moab has been judged, Isaiah's heart breaks over the fall of his neighbors to the east. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. The Moabite king will pray to his idols, but it will be to no avail. His idols will be no help. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. Within three years of Isaiah's writing, the Assyrians had stormed the land. 
They had penetrated the rock fortresses of Petra and they had destroyed the desert kingdom of Moab. Chapter 17 is the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. This is significant. For Damascus is one of several cities in the world that claim to be its oldest. Jericho makes that claim, as does the Syrian capital of Damascus. Many times in the past, Damascus has been destroyed, only to rise again from its ashes. Even today, it's a thriving city of 1.7 million people. He says, the cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down. And no one will make them afraid. These cities of Aurora were the Damascus suburbs. Here he's saying that they'll be turned to grassland and pasture land. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Ephraim was another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. It also will be included in this judgment that will come upon Syria. Both Syria and Israel will fall to the Assyrians. In that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob, still another name for Israel, will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. In other words, Israel will become weak and anemic. Its glory will pass and its prosperity will swoon. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bow. Four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. Once when we were in Israel, we saw them harvesting olives. And you harvest olives by placing a tarp under the olive tree. And then you shake the fruit off of the limbs and they fall down on the tarp. And then you collect the olives. Implied here is that God will leave a remnant among the nations. That neither Syria or Israel will be utterly destroyed. But God will leave a few olives. A few olives will remain in the branches. In that day a man will look to his maker. And his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars. The work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made. Nor the wooden images. Nor the incense altars. After God's judgment the remnant of Israel. Israel, Israelis left in the land will look to their maker. They'll reverence their God. They'll be done with their idols. Zechariah 12 foresees another remnant of Jews. Those in the last days who hide at Petra in Moab and survive the great tribulation. They too will be purified from the experience. They'll look to Jesus and they'll be saved. Well, Verse 9 tells us in that day his strong cities will be as a forsaken bow and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore you will plant pleasant plants, and set out foreign seedlings. In the day you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish. Now notice this, Isaiah foresees a day when these nations, both Syria and Israel, will tend to their land, but forget about their God. They'll tend to their land, but they'll forget about their God. It's interesting, during the Turkish domination of Palestine, the Ottomans taxed the number of trees on your land. 
And so what did the landowners do? They cut down their trees. It sort of denuded the land. But when the Jews began returning to the land in the 20th century, a massive reforestation program was started. To this date, over 200 million trees have been replanted all across Israel. In fact, today, visitors to Israel are encouraged to purchase and plant a tree. They give you a little certificate saying that you planted a tree in Israel. And yet the Jews will be unable to enjoy their country's resurgence. He says, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. They'll plant, but with the harvest comes a period of sorrow and ruin. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. And and throughout the Bible, the rushing water is imagery for an invading army. He says, the nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at evening tide, trouble, and before the morning, he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Again, this focus seems to be future. In the great tribulation, a revived Israel will be invaded and plundered. Israel, Isaiah here says that nations, plural, the Antichrist will form his coalition. And he will come into the land in order to rob Israel. But God will fight for his people. And Isaiah says, before the morning, those opposing forces will be no more. Chapter 18 Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Now, the rivers of Ethiopia are in the northern part of that country. Thus, the land, the nation itself, is beyond the rivers. It's also the land shadowed with buzzing wings. This is probably a reference to the fauna of Ethiopia, its birds and its insects. And i got to tell you, the Nile Valley, which stretches into Ethiopia, swarms with buzzing, flying critters. But there are some folks who equate these buzzing wings with modern aviation. And of course, there are are more buzzing aircraft over the skies of the United States of America than any other nation. For people who want to find America in their Bible, this is a good opportunity. Chapter 18 of Isaiah. Now, I pers- I, you know, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to tell you that personally, I think what I'm about to say is a stretch. Okay? But you can judge for yourself. I'm going to kind of lay out the comparison. I'm just going to kind of let you judge for yourself. I've heard it said, torture a text long enough and it will eventually confess. In other words, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if if that's your intention. And so we need to be careful not to infer more from a passage than what's there. But but there are some people who, who... are determined to find America in the Bible. And i got to tell you, Isaiah chapter 18 is, is probably your best shot. This nation in Isaiah 
and the United States do have some similarities. Notice verse 2. This is a nation which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters. Now, now you can travel from Ethiopia to Israel by land. You remember when the Ethiopian eunuch came to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8, he came by chariot, not by boat. This nation sends its ambassadors by ship. And of course, until the age of air travel, American ambassadors traveled by steamship to both Europe and to Africa. Saying, go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin. Ethiopians have been known as being tall and smooth of skin. NBA star Manute Bowl was an Ethiopian. All seven foot seven inches of him. Ancient Ethiopians were tall people. It's interesting, in modern times, that has changed. Until recent years, did you know who the tallest nation on the planet was? The average height, tallest people? Americans. Americans were the tallest people on the planet up until just recently. Today, do you know, do you know who it is today? It's the Dutch. That's why that soccer team did so well from the Netherlands. They were able to jump up there and head that ball down into the net. Today, America ranks ninth on the list. On average, Ethiopians are shorter. Yet there are some African tribes, like the Maasai tribe in Kenya, which are extremely tall in stature. Well, the description continues, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. At the time of Isaiah, Ethiopia was Africa's most powerful nation. Did you know that in 715 B.C., a mighty Ethiopian ruler named Shabako conquered the Egyptian throne? Ethiopian rulers dominated Egypt until 633 B.C., about 70, 80 years. Notice, too, this country is called a nation terrible from their beginning onward. And, of course, this would apply to the United States of America, to our, our nation, our army, up until the conflict in Vietnam. The United States Armed Forces had never lost a war. We were a nation mighty and terrible from our beginning onward. Notice too, this nation Isaiah speaks of is described as a land that rivers divide. That's another way of saying a land surrounded by water. Verse 3 tells us, All the inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. In other words, when this nation does anything, all the world casts its attention upon it. That could certainly be said of America. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. And of course, this is not good tidings. You won't do in the springtime, not in the harvest. It's destructive to the crops. Here we're told that God is about to judge this nation. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, 
A nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. When Messiah returns, this nation will be called up to Jerusalem, and they'll come bringing a gift, and they'll join Israel in the worship of God. So who this nation is? You be the judge. Verse chapter 19. Is the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. Now in the days of Isaiah, Egypt was a far cry from what the nation had been in the days of Moses. Egypt had been fragmented by infighting. The nation had become weak. It was dominated by the Ethiopians. And Egypt was considered easy prey for the invading Assyrians. Verse 2 says, I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their council and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. Egypt was a land of idols. It has always been. Now in the day of judgment, the Egyptians will learn just how much help their idols would be. Not much. He says, And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Then he says, The waters will fail from the sea, and the river will be wasted and dried up. And of course, when we think of A river in Egypt, there's one mighty river, the Nile. Next to NASA's lunar missions, the great engineering feat of the 1960s was the construction of the Aswan Dam. It was constructed at great cost by Soviet and Egyptian engineers. The Nile River is the longest river in the world. It stretches for 4,145 miles. The Aswan Dam is two miles wide, 365 feet high. It was built at the cost of $900 million. That's back in the 1960s. The idea behind the project was to use the Nile for year-round irrigation and to provide electricity for the country. At the time, it seemed like a good idea. You see, the Nile River is muddy, and it's unpredictable. And thus, the Aswan Dam seemed like a great way of controlling a nuisance. This was the opinion of the experts in 1960, but not so today. For currently, the Aswan Dam is viewed as one of the biggest ecological disasters in the history of the modern world. These next few verses are absolutely amazing. Because writing 2,700 years ago, Isaiah predicts a modern-day calamity on the banks of the Nile. He says, the rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, and be no more. The fishermen also will mourn. All those will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. 
Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. In other words, what the Gulf of Mexico is to the residents of southern Louisiana, the Nile was to the Egyptians. It was their source of livelihood. It was their lifeblood. And yet, rather than making money, the Aswan Dam has created an economic disaster for Egypt. Here's what the Aswan engineers overlooked. You see, the Nile brings large amounts of silt down from the mountains of inner Africa. This silt provided food for the fish in the Nile River. When the Nile overflowed its banks, this silt also fertilized the soil, which made it very rich and very fertile. Today, because of the dam, fishing is almost non-existent in the Nile. And the soil now in the heart of Egypt is malnourished. The lack of silt has also caused the mouth of the Nile that feeds into the Mediterranean Sea to erode. And this has created a saltwater intrusion or a backup into the, uh, the mouth of the Nile River, poisoning the waters that flow northward. Another problem exists. There's a snail that eats vegetation all along the riverbank. The silt used to kill these snails. Today they multiply unabated. Isaiah saw all of these problems ahead of time. This is a problem even till this day. Verse 11. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The ancient kings were victims of bad counsel, just as the modern Egyptians were victims of some bad engineering by the Soviet engineers who came and helped them with the dam. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither will there be any work for Egypt which the head or tail, palm branch, or bulrush may do. The building of the Aswan Dam has cost Egypt jobs. He says, in that day, well, just as the oil spill down in Louisiana is costing us jobs. In that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. Now, just as the Hebrews plagued the Pharaoh of old, here Isaiah predicts that modern Israel will also be a terror to the Egyptians. In fact, each time that Egypt and Israel has squared off in battle in recent years, the Egyptians have been routed and the Israelis have taken more of their land. In 1948, in 1956, in 1967, again in 1973, in the Yom Kippur War, General Ariel Sharon, who later became prime minister, he drove his tank brigade deep behind Egyptian lines. He surrounded Egypt's third army and took over the Sinai Peninsula. Finally, the Egyptians gave up fighting the Israelis, and in 1978... 
Anwar Sadat signed the Camp David Accords with Israel. Verse 18 tells us, In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. Notice that. Egypt will swear by the Lord of hosts, by Yahweh, the God of Israel. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. A spiritual awakening will occur among the land of the idols. Apparently in the last days, Egypt will come to the truth of God and establish altars and memorials to Yahweh. He says, and it will be a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a mighty one. And he will deliver them. Now according to Daniel, when the Antichrist army, we've talked about this, sweeps into Israel. He will also invade Egypt. Moab, Ammon, and Edom will escape. But not Egypt. Daniel 11 again reads, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He'll attack Israel and Egypt and yet the Messiah, this mighty one as Isaiah calls him, will come to the rescue of both the Jews and the Egyptians. And this will stir up a revival among the Egyptians. Verse 21, Then the Lord will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day And will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. Then then they will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. What a wonderful promise to Egypt. But notice the provocative phrase stated in verse 22. And this is is what you got to think through. They will return to the Lord. Implied is that Egypt once knew the Lord. But when? Most people believe this refers to the early Christian era. When a strong community of believers in Jesus formed in Egypt and in Alexandria. The church that formed is today called the Coptic Church. At the time, Egypt was Christianity's hub in Africa. But there's another possibility here. And i got to say, again, this is only conjecture. I'm going to call this a fanciful idea at best, okay? Understand, this is far more Isaiah than Isaiah, okay? (laughs) You need to separate. Put a lot of stock in Isaiah, okay, but not a lot of stock in... Isaiah. That's what this is, though. Now, here we go. According to Monetho, who was an ancient Egyptian historian, around 2000 BC, Semitic warriors conquered Egypt. They were called the Hyksos, or the shepherd kings. They were monotheistic, not idolatrous. Thus, they demolished many of Egypt's idols and temples. Their kings reigned. In Joseph's day. And it's possible that due to Joseph's influence, many of the Egyptians worshipped Yahweh. 
You remember what it was said of, of Joseph when Joseph died and, and in years later when the Egyptians took the Hebrews back into captivity and made them slaves, it was because the kings no longer knew Joseph. You remember the passage there? Monetho also said that the Hyksos were responsible for building the great pyramid of Giza. And here's where it gets real controversial. Some people believe that the great pyramid of Giza was actually built to teach the gospel in the borders of Egypt. Notice Isaiah mentions here a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. He mentions an altar in the midst of the land and a pillar at the border. Notice too the strange language in verse 19. How can an object be in the midst and at the same time at the border? Traditionally, Egypt is divided into upper Egypt and lower Egypt. Giza, though, is in the middle of the nation. And it actually marked the border between the two halves. In fact, the word Giza means border. Thus, it's situated in a place where it's in the midst and yet at the border. The great pyramid of Giza, it existed when Joseph ruled Egypt. It existed when Moses led the Hebrews through the Red Sea. It existed when Mary and Joseph sought refuge in Egypt from Herod. Imagine all those years and a symbol of the gospel stood right there in Egypt. The Great Pyramid is an engineering marvel. Its 2.3 million stones are precisely aligned. Did you know they're, they're more precisely aligned than tiles on the space shuttle? It's incredible engineering. The pyramid was aligned with true north before the invention of the compass. How did that happen? Inside the king's chamber of the pyramid, there is a box, the exact size of the Ark of the Covenant. The central passageway, the ascending and descending stairs within the pyramid are set at an angle that points directly to the city of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. All kinds of theories abound as to how the pyramid's other features point to Christ. Isn't it interesting that the rage in New Age religion today is pyramid power? Has Satan ripped off God's symbol? I think he has. The pyramid may have been a symbol of God's redemption. There in Egypt, man has now turned that symbol into an idol. Well, chapter 19 closes. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. This is very interesting. In the kingdom age, Jesus has a DOT. He's paving roads and making highways. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. When Jesus returns, he'll form new alliances, bitter enemies, Egypt, Assyria, Israel. Can you imagine three nations more opposed, more at odds with each other? Egypt and Assyria were bitter enemies. Assyria... 
invaded Israel. All three of them, Israel and Egypt have never gotten along. All three of those nations will suddenly become friends. There'll be a highway connecting them. There'll be peace between them. This will happen when Jesus reigns. And so, bald heads, as one dam, great pyramid of Giza, buzzing wings, Antichrist, Indiana Jones, and Manute Bowl. What did they all have in common? We talked about them tonight. 